welcome you all. The launch of Todd's talks today uh, begins uh, with our friend uh, N.T. Wright. I'm delighted to welcome Tom from his home in Oxford, England. And although Tom needs no introduction, uh, at least a few introductory words are in order. The Wright Reverend Professor N.T. Wright, who allows us to simply call him Tom, is Research Professor of New Testament and Early Christianity at the University of St. Andrews and Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. Over the course of his life in ministry, Tom has served as Bishop of Durham, Canon Theologian at Westminster, Dean of Litchfield, and fellow tutor and chaplain at Worcester College, Oxford. As you know, Tom is a prolific author, the author of over 80 books, including The New Testament and the People of God, Jesus and the Victory of God, The Resurrection of the Son of God, Scripture and the Authority of God, Simply Christian, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, Paul, a biography, and with Michael F. Byrd, the New Testament in its world. And this is to name but eight, roughly 10%. Today, we're going to visit with Tom about his soon-to-be-released book, God and the Pandemic, a Christian reflection on the coronavirus and its aftermath. This slender yet substantive volume is meant to be released tomorrow, by SPCK in the UK and on June 4th by Zondervan in the US. Tom, welcome. Before we turn our attention to your timely thought-provoking volume, I know that our viewers will want to know how you and your loved ones are faring during this protracted period of lockdown in England and in Great Britain due to COVID-19. How are you coping? And have no. you managed to develop something of a rhythm in this time between times? Thank you, Todd. Thank you for your invitation and your very generous welcome and for that very sensitive and pastoral question. Um, it is a difficult time. We have got into quite a standard rhythm. I have often been somebody who works from home anyway. So staying home, sitting in a study here and reading and writing and praying, this is what I like to do anyway. So I am one of the lucky ones from that point of view. Also, Maggie and I have this little house in the middle of Oxford, which Wycliffe Hall are renting for us. And uh, we have a little garden. And also we are able to use the big garden in the college. It's called New College, the other side of the street, which is wonderful. So most days we've been going for a walk in a splendid garden and getting that fresh air. And I cycle around Oxford as well. And cycling is, I think, reasonably safe. You don't have to go near people. And it's a very strange experience because normally at this time of the year, Oxford would be absolutely full of students and tourists and all the fun of a university fair. And the streets are almost entirely empty and it's eerie. It's very strange. But you see the buildings and they're beautiful. So it's a very strange time. The rest of our family, I think, are coping more or less all right. Our biggest sorrow is that we now live quite close to our youngest son and his family, including our two youngest grandchildren, and we don't get to see them. We, we are not allowed to go and fraternize with them and hug them. Um, it's just not permitted at the moment. So we talk on FaceTime and we do all that stuff. 
that that is quite a deprivation. And I think especially for Maggie, I have a lot of work to get on with, but she as a grandmother just wants to be with the little people. So it's a mixed time, but we have it a lot easier than many people do. Tom, do you have any additional instructions as to when the lockdown might loosen? Uh, well, it's supposed to be loosening a bit in England at the moment and in Scotland in a few days' time. The different four different nations within the, um, the, the UK are taking it differently according to how they see their own situation. Um, but we're not quite sure what that loosening will mean. I think it will mean that some more shops will open, but I think we will still be required to observe what we've all come to call social distancing. We're supposed to stay two metres away from everybody, though actually that's not always easy in the average store, but we do our best. But I don't see that pubs or cinemas, uh, let alone major sporting events, are going to be opening anytime soon. Um, maybe July, August at this rate. Mm -hmm. Well, Tom, let's turn our attention to your volume, God in the Pandemic. Given the ongoing demands on your time and energy, uh, why this book? Why did you choose to write uh, God and the Pandemic? Well, when this thing first began, I had a call from uh, a friend who is a sub-editor on Time magazine, who I've worked with before, and she said, could you do us a little article, maybe 800 words on this? And I said, listen, I'm very busy. I'm finishing a book. I was just actually finishing my Galatians commentary, which happily did get finished a few weeks ago. Um, I said, I really don't have time to do this, but thanks for asking. And then over the course of the next 24 hours, I kept on getting little ideas as to actually we need to say this and we probably need to say that. So I just rattled off 800 words, sent it out the door, and she got back and said, that's just what we want, fine. Went into the magazine. I don't know whether it was in the print version or the uh, online version or both. And immediately I started getting feedback, often quite angry feedback, from people saying, uh, surely N.T. Wright has read his Bible and he knows perfectly well from the prophet Amos that when something like this happens, it means we've all been very wicked and should repent. And I thought, well, it might mean partly that, but there's plenty of other Bible passages which might well query that, not least the book of Job, and so on and so on. So I started to think more about it. Then a friend from New York said, would I do an online interview with him for his congregation about the whole business? And so I did, and I made some notes from that. And then I called my publisher and said, you know what, I think I've got maybe 20,000 words on this now. And he said, let's have a look. And the next thing I knew it was in production. So that's <laughs> how it worked. <laughs> but the Time article, which any number of us have read uh, with mm -hmm. great profit, uh, is in fact the seed that has grown now into yeah. this tree that is God in the pandemic. So Tom, you begin your book <clears throat> by raising the question, where do we begin? Where, where do we start? You then suggest that perhaps the best question that Christ followers can be asking just now is not why did this happen, but what can we do in this present moment? Would you please elaborate on this a bit so folks can get a feel for what it is you're driving at there? Sure, sure. Two things. Um, one of the first biblical passages that struck me when I was first writing the Time article, I can't now remember if it went into that article, but it was in my head, was from Acts 11, which is often skipped over because it just seems like a pragmatic thing. But 
Here is the church in Antioch, a prophet, Agabus, says, hey, there's going to be a famine over the whole region. And it struck me that the church in Antioch do not say, uh, oh, this is a sign that the Lord is going to return. You know, the Lord might return at any time, but that's not the conclusion they draw from this. Nor do they say, oh, what ought we to be repenting of? Or what ought we to be saying to our government that they should be repenting of or whatever? They simply say, who is going to be most at risk in this? What can we do to help? And who can we send? In other words, they're not looking for causes, theological or practical. They're looking for cures, for addressing the problems that are going to be raised. And that then, second, um, made me reflect on the theological point that I think in the modern Western world over the last two or three hundred years, um, and I think particularly this is a fault of a rather over-intellectualized Protestantism, if I can put it like that, a kind of a rationalistic Protestantism, we feel that because we're Christians, we ought to be able to have an account of what God is up to in a particular instance. And so we want to have a secure picture of a God who's in control, so that if something like this happens, well, God is in control, so he must have meant it. So we must, as Christians, be able to figure out why he meant it. And then we can say, this happened because of A, B, and C, therefore we should repent or whatever. And actually, as I was listening to the conversation after the original Time article, I did hear some of that kind of line of thought. And that struck me as going about it in the wrong way at quite a deep theological level. I don't know if you've read or anyone listening has read my Gifford lectures, History and Eschatology, but there I argue very strongly that we can only really do theology when we put Jesus in the middle as the starting point. And so what I was then concerned to do was to draw things in, not to say, what does it mean that God is in control, but let's look at Jesus and then see what God being in control might look like. Because when Jesus is walking around Galilee and Judea, what he's talking about is the kingdom of God. In other words, this is what it looks like when God becomes king, when God takes charge. And that ends up not with a big overall theory about now we all have in our heads the secret as to what God is doing, but with the crucifixion, with Jesus dying to defeat the evil in the world by taking sinners' sin on himself. And so that's really the argument that emerged from all this. So it's, it's not why did this happen, it's what can we do, and as we're doing that, let's get closer to Jesus himself and only start thinking theories about what God is up to in the light of that. Tom, you've already alluded to a couple of suggestions um, that are not so uh, helpful. In fact, they may be quite harmful. Um, what are a few of these that are on offer and, and, and why are they harmful and how do you seek to counter them in the book? Yeah, I think the, the two or three which keep coming up, and, and I had an email from a former student of mine who now lives in California, and he was talking about this this morning, the, the words that he's hearing on the street and from his friends around and in church and so on. Some people are simply saying, this is a perfect moment for evangelism. And I want to say everything is a perfect moment for evangelism. And beware, because if you suddenly turn around to your friends and say, now, you've been thinking about dying, haven't you? Now, let me tell you what happens when you die, etc. Then they may not terribly like that. They may think you're taking advantage of the pandemic in order to pounce on them and to say, I want you to think about this right now. Now, there may well be people 
whose minds have been opened to, oh my goodness, I am mortal, um, as everyone actually is. Maybe I need to think about that. Fine, if people are asking the questions, but actually that is a conversation that could be had anytime. You don't need a pandemic in order to start that. Um, but then there are those who are saying quite clearly, um, this is a sign that the, the, the eschatological clock has started ticking, that we are now three years or five years or months or whatever it is from the rapture and so on. And I want to say Jesus was quite explicit in Mark 13 about when we hear of wars and rumors of wars, when we hear of famines and earthquakes, etc., don't panic, lift up your heads, just keep trusting. Uh, this is not a sign of the end. Now, there's much more to say about Mark 13, but certainly that's really very clear. And in the early church, there are all sorts of bad things that happen, like that famine in Acts 11. And they don't say, oh, this is a sign of the end. Jesus himself said, there will be no signs. Paul says, um, the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. You will not know. So please, let's just park that one and put it out of sight where it deserves. But then there is particularly the call to repent. And that's where I've tried to say in the book, you know, Jesus gave us this amazing prayer, so simple yet so profound. And I pray the Lord's Prayer two or three times every day. And I think many, many Christians around the world do something like that. And this means that every day is a day when we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as in heaven, not just when there's a pandemic on. Every day is a day to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, not just when we've been alerted to something by the pandemic. Of course, God is well capable of alerting people to the need to repent at all, in all sorts of ways. And, and he does it to me in various ways, and he no doubt does it to plenty of people. But it's not something we should at once seize on. And so I, I'm very much aware, and I think this is particularly in America, I'm not hearing it in Europe right now, of people saying, oh, this is a sign of some great political thing that we ought to do. And of course, you Americans have got an election this year. You always seem to be either having just had an election or about to have one, um, and you want to sort of hook it in. We have elections from time to time, but we don't usually think that they are influenced by um, God and pandemics and things. We have other fish we try to fry. Um, and I, I really want to be very careful about this because I think we in the Western church have tended to assume that we are in the modern world. So we basically have a comfortable life and we can preach the gospel and go out to the rest of the world who have a, a harder life and, and give them some of the good things we have. Now, suddenly we're in trouble. And that just reveals the inner state of how things have always actually been. You know, the two generations before my lifetime were great world wars. My father was a POW in the second war. My grandfather fought in the first war. Um, I'm the first generation um, for over a century that hasn't had to do that. Um, and uh, so suddenly when something like this happens, it catches our breath. Oh, my goodness, the world is a dangerous place. Well, come on, let's grow up. The world has always been a dangerous place. So those are some of the things that I'm trying to explore in the book. So, Tom, the heart of the book, chapters two to four, are given over to really a biblical theology where uh, you uh, turn to various biblical texts and you read those texts in, in light of the present context. Um, of course, uh, folks need to take up and read, and this isn't a place to rehearse the whole of the volume, but I wonder if you could just give us, Tom, uh, 
a panoramic tour, uh, some broad brushstrokes of kind of the thrust of your reading of Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, chapter two, Jesus in the Gospels, chapter three, <laughs> the rest of the New Testament, particularly Romans eight, Tom, and, and, and your treatment of that text where we don't groan alone. Um, can, you, can you kind of help folks see what they're going to find when they get the book? Sure. Um, uh, as, as I think I said before, um, for me, the focus on Jesus came across very clearly because I began by looking back at Amos and so on and saying, yeah, indeed, here's what uh, um, uh, Ammon did, here's what Moab did, here's what Syria did, here's what Israel and Judah have done, and therefore they're going to be punished like this. It's very clear. Uh, you do something bad, here's the punishment. And of course, that is one of the larger biblical strands, uh, particularly in Deuteronomy and all the way through Lamentations, through Jeremiah, into Daniel 9. Here is the covenant. If you keep it, everything will go well. If you don't, everything will go badly and it'll end up in exile. That is a major part of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. At the same time, there is a counter tradition and whoever put the Bible together in its present form the wise rabbis of, of centuries before the time of Jesus, they, I think, knew perfectly well that that is a true story, but it's not the only true story. Because the second true story is what you find in the book of Job, where Job's comforters are very keen to try a Deuteronomy trick on him. Bad things are happening to you, Job. That must be because you've sinned or your family's sinned or something. And Job knows perfectly well that's wrong. And the reader knows perfectly well that's wrong. But the solution is not obvious. And even at the end of the book, the solution is not obvious. And in the same way, in the Psalms, yes, you get Psalm 1. Basically, if you walk in the way of the Lord, things will go well and you'll flourish. And if you're wicked and do the opposite, everything will go to rack and ruin. And Psalm 73 puts up his hand and says, well, excuse me, I sort of believe that, but it doesn't seem to be working right now. And likewise, when you get Psalm 37 saying, I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging their bread. Psalm 44 comes right back and says, well, have a look at me. Here I am. I haven't done anything wrong. And I'm saying to God, I didn't deserve what's happening to me. And so those traditions are kind of jangling against each other. And like so many things in the Old Testament, the traditions that don't seem to fit as they stand, they rush together in the first 30 years of our era and they come together in Jesus, that he bears in himself the long-term fate of exiled Israel, that's narrative number one, but simultaneously he is the righteous bearing the penalty and the shame of the unrighteous, that's narrative two. And as so often in Old Testament hermeneutics, it makes sense in Jesus and only from Jesus in retrospect do we see how it all fits? But then as a result, the thing changes. And when we read the parables, when we read Jesus' sayings and some of the odd sayings in John, we realize that Jesus both is and isn't being like an Old Testament prophet. He is taking that prophetic tradition and warning Israel of judgment because Israel as a whole has failed to be the covenant people of God, failed to be the light of the world. But then he is constantly pointing onwards. And the signs that Jesus is doing in John's gospel 
are not signs of all the wicked things that you've done for which you're going to be punished, but they're signs of new creation. And so the whole thing moves forward in a mode of new creation. And it's within that that we get in Paul particularly and in Romans 8 particularly. Romans 8 is the great chapter of new creation, but at the heart of that we get this fascinating Trinitarian passage where the Spirit groans within us as we groan in pain at the heart of the world's groaning in pain. And Paul says, the one who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people according to God's will. That's an allusion to, guess what, Psalm 44. And Paul quotes it again before the end of the chapter, for your sake we are being killed all day long and counted as sheep for the slaughter. Paul is wrestling with that same biblical tradition, but now doing so in Trinitarian mode. And there is the Christian vocation in the middle of this, not to have a solution where we can look from the side and say, oh, of course, this is happening because you, you and you are very sinful and you need to repent. And well, yes, I need to repent as well, but it's basically all explicable. No, the, the extraordinary thing in Romans 8 is that the spirit whose mind God the Father knows, the spirit does not know what to say. The spirit groans within us with groanings that cannot come into speech. There are no words for the lament of the spirit. And that sort of heart-rending lament is what we are called to in a situation like that. Our temptation is to belittle the problem by saying, here's the solution, now we can all sleep easy because we've understood it. And the answer is, no, sorry, you can't. Stay on your knees, lament in those Psalms, and learn to see the whole of history through the lens of Jesus himself. That's what it's all about. Tom, that's, uh, that, that's powerful. And um, it leads us to uh, your chapter five, uh, which is the final chapter of this volume, where you raise a number of questions. Uh, the chapter itself is a question, where do we go from here? Mm -hmm. The first question, though, you take up is uh, actually where you've just left off. You ask the question, why, why must we lament? Uh, how can we uh, talk about God? Uh, how can we live in the present moment? Uh, how do we recover? Um, walk us through the, the, the major threads of your final chapter, Tom, particularly this yeah. call to lament. Yes, yes. I, I, I find myself talking to so many people about this since I wrote the book, and it's only two or three weeks ago, that I can't now remember which bit comes where. But let me focus on that call to lament. I was talking to one of the church leaders who I know here in the UK just a week or two ago, and he said to me, he said, yeah, you're quite right to say that we're not good at lament and we need to learn it. He said, in the same way, we're not very good at celebration either. He said, what we're mostly good at is complacency. And I thought, yep, I think he's probably right. We just trundle on and yeah, we have happy days and slightly sad days, but we try not to overemphasize those. But when we go back into Paul's world or Jesus' world, when there was something to celebrate, people went out on the street and they danced and they sang and they clapped and they made merry. And when there was something to be sad over, they wept and they mourned and they lamented and they did grief full on in a way which we in the Western world have hushed up. 
And you know, the older I get, the more I think that the last two or three centuries in the Western world, we've seen such great gains in so many areas, in science and technology, and especially in medical technology, actually, though this is reminding us we haven't got as far with that as we might have liked. Um, but as a result, we've sort of gone placid and yes, complacent. And actually there are many, many occasions around the world, but in the Western world as well, when we need to rediscover lament. For me, this came home particularly, I alluded to it somewhere else, in Psalm 88, um, which is the most unrelievedly gloomy psalm. There is no glimmer of light. It ends with darkness is my only companion. And it seems to me that sooner or later, all of us actually get there, either in grief or because of some tragedy or, or some horror that's happened, that there comes a time when we, we cannot just leap out of that and say, oh, well, the psalm has a happy ending. Some psalms don't have happy endings. Some psalms, like Psalm 89, start happy and end up with a big puzzle. Why has it all gone horribly wrong? And so on and so on. So somehow I think in our churches, we need to rediscover a discipline of lament. We may do it sometimes during the season we call Lent, the 40 days before Good Friday and Easter. We may do it in Holy Week and on Good Friday itself. But actually, that's often not taken, I think, in the full biblical way. And we need to get back to that. I've noticed there have been some good books written in America recently about lament. Maybe this is something which is stirring within the church, a sense that many people have grown up as Christians thinking that if you believe in Jesus, all your problems will be solved. And then when horrible things happen at whatever level, uh, oh, maybe it's not true. Maybe it's all gone horribly wrong and we shouldn't have believed in the first place. And the answer is no. The Bible is full of moments of lament or seasons of lament. And that's there for a reason. It's there for us to inhabit when we need to. And I'm saying that to myself as well as to everyone listening. Mm. Um, Tom, um, before I uh, draw us to a close, I, I, I have another question for you. As we close, I, I want to give a bit of commercial about the book. Uh, mm. I, I want uh, to also uh, ask you, if you would, as we conclude, to lead us in the Lord's Prayer. Sure. But before we get there, um, I notice, Tom, that you dedicate your book, this book, about which we've been speaking, oh to Simon Barrington Ward, a Church of England bishop who died from complications arising from COVID-19. I wonder if you would care, Tom, to reflect upon uh, the ministry of uh, this bishop and upon the human toll that this dreadful disease has taken more generally. In, in all of this, uh, it, it's helpful, at least it's helpful for me to keep, um, you know, the the person in view. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Uh, I knew Simon Barrington Ward reasonably well. He was Bishop of Coventry for many years. And uh, when I was in Oxford before, 30 years ago, he invited me to come as a kind of an extra to Coventry Cathedral um, on the side from my work in Oxford to be a canon theologian. That was sort of visiting theologian. I would go and lead clergy study days and that sort of thing. And it became clear to me that Simon himself was a very wise man, a man, a deeply prayerful man, but also he read very widely. He had a fine mind. He could easily have been a full-on scholar. He knew French literature, Russian literature, all sorts of stuff. 
but he prayed the Jesus prayer. He was an expert, if I can put it like that, on the Jesus prayer. That was his, the center of his spirituality. He would teach people to pray, Lord Jesus Christ, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And to use that prayer to reach out into the wider world so that whatever you wanted to pray about, as that prayer was happening in the rhythm of your breathing, you would find that the arms of Jesus are reaching out to embrace the pain of the sinful and suffering world. And in the course of that, to hold your own pain and sin and suffering um, in front of Jesus as well. And Simon was very keen on that, but he was also he was also a man of extraordinarily rare insight. Some of you, some of those listening may know that uh, Michael Ward, theologian, wrote a book called Planet Narnia about the C.S. Lewis um, seven children's stories in which he explores all the hidden meanings that were there in Planet Narnia. Well, the reason Michael Ward tumbled to that hypothesis, which by the way is demonstrably true, was that he'd spent a long evening with Simon Barrington Ward in Magdalen College, Cambridge, where Simon had retired to. And they talked about Lewis because Simon had known Lewis when Lewis was a fellow of Magdalen in the 1960s. And it was after that meeting and praying together that Ward suddenly realized this. And somebody said to me, somebody who knew Simon well said, hmm, Simon was the sort of person around whom that kind of thing happened. Wasn't that nice? So anyway, we then kept up and, and we, we stayed good friends. And then I got the message from his daughter, who I know just a little bit, who's actually ordained, that Simon had been, he, he was quite ill anyway, but then he had COVID-19 and the complications meant that, that he wasn't going to recover from that. He was in his late 80s. So a homage to a great, lovely, a saint, actually, who's a very saintly, wise, godly man with a wonderful twinkle in the eye, wonderful sense of humor. Um, and uh, I suspect that he is now actually rather uh, tickled that, uh, that I should be dedicating this book to his memory, and I'm very glad to be able to do so. Tom, that's amazingly meaningful, and you, you, you need to know how grateful we are for your time today. Thank you. I'm uh, grateful for you taking the time. Um, and uh, before I ask you, Bishop Wright, uh, to offer uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer to lead us in the same, you suggest uh, on page 19 of your book, in a sense, learning to follow Jesus is simply learning to pray the Lord's Prayer. So I'd love for you to lead us. And from our various computer screens, we're going to join you as uh, this chorus uh, resounds and as we pray together, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But I want to just remind uh, those who watch and listen that Tom's book is now to be available uh, tomorrow in the UK through SPCK. It will launch as an ebook both in the UK and uh, via Zondervan uh, in the US on 4 June. Uh, it will latterly appear as a paperback, but I would encourage you, having carefully read this book myself, uh, in fact, twice uh, in preparation for our time together, uh, that this is precisely the kind of book that you would want to purchase and use in Bible studies uh, with your uh, friends who are you're connecting with Zoom, small groups, Sunday school groups. Um, uh, this is the time to have this conversation. Uh, and so I trust that you 
we'll be able to find the book and we'll be able to use it because at the end of the day, frankly, that's why Tom has written it uh, in order that it might be used, in order that it might stimulate and start these conversations, some of which are very deep ones, some of which are very important ones. We'll flag just one. Tom has said that in a very real way, uh, the Bible is not a monophony, uh, uh, nor is the Bible a cacophony, but the Bible is a symphony. I'm stealing from Richard Hayes' echoes of uh, uh, actually the moral vision of the New Testament to say that. But uh, this is what Tom is able to help us see, that these threads can be woven together into full cloth as we ponder these matters more fully. So I commend uh, the book to you. And uh, Tom, I'm grateful for your time. Please lead us, Bishop, in the Lord's Prayer. Let's pray together. And uh, as, as we do this, as with the Jesus prayer that Simon was talking about, so also with the Lord's Prayer, this is a prayer that reaches out its hands to embrace the world and its need to celebrate God's kingdom, but also to come with empty hands as we seek both blessing and food and forgiveness and deliverance. So I'll use the traditional form that you hinted at with the these and thys. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Blessings on you all. Thank you very much. Tom, thank you for your time. Thank you for leading us in the prayer. Thank you for all of those who were able to watch and listen. Um, this will be available on a Zoom link that will be sent to you so that you might uh, listen again and so that you might share with those uh, who were unable to join us during this time. Once again, a link to Tom's uh, instruction on the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, made available through NT Write Online, will be sent to you by our colleague, David uh, Seemuth. Uh, once again, share it, uh, and it's, it's, it's meant to be used. Tom, thank you. Uh, it's tea time for you. Enjoy. <laughs> it is. Thank you very much indeed. So, uh, am I good to go now? <laughs> You're good to go. Great. Go eat some dinner. Thanks, guys. See you again. Bye-bye. Thank bye. you very bye much. Bye. Thank you.